Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is contemporary medicine close to discovering the secret of physical immortality? What are the implications of such a discovery? Who gets to, quote, live forever, and who doesn't? Well, hello there, and welcome to the 367th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those rather chilling questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So tonight, we're going to tackle this subject with a doctor who has written a book all about it. But first, it's time for a weekly paranormal contest. So last week's question was, in what U.S. state did a couple recently sue their landlord over claiming that their house was haunted? Well, Cecily Mera or Maras of New York City was the first to get that one right. State of New Jersey, wherein the lovely community of Tom's River, a couple really is suing their landlord because they claim the house is haunted. They report what to us seems like routine multiversal interactions, lights and faucets turning on and off, sounds of other people talking, etc. The couple wants their $2,500 deposit back. Now, our latest information is that the case has gone to court, but there has not yet been a decision. I could be wrong about that, but I looked it up and I haven't seen any yet. If New Jersey's court system is typical, the couple might wait for years. Uh, the house was about 10 miles away, interestingly enough, from the site of the Hindenburg airship disaster in 1937. Now, I'm not suggesting that has anything to do with anything, but it is a historical... Um, a little, little fun history. fact for yeah, that. Yes, fun fact, yes. All right, so this week's question is, in the modern world, what scientist first proposed the idea of the multiverse as an interpretation of quantum physics? Uh, be first to get that right and win a copy of Footsteps in the Attic, my dad's most popular book. Uh, We do welcome callers this evening. Our phone numbers locally or from Canada, 401-766-1240, or from anywhere in the USA, 800-449-1240. Now, we rarely have novelists as guests, but James Rollins is a novelist and a veterinarian who has a solid scientific background in what he writes about. Dr. Rollins is a New York Times bestselling author of international thrillers translated into more than 40 languages. His books have been acclaimed for their originality, and in them, he reveals unseen worlds, scientific breakthroughs, and historical secrets. His novels explore how advancing technology can impact society, not just by the physical threats of unchecked developments, but also the spiritual and moral challenges that result. Jim has written at least one book a year since his first thriller, Subterranean, was published in 1999. He makes me sick because it takes me five years to write a book. Anyway, his <laughs> website is www.jamesrollins.com. So, James Rollins, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you very much, Paul Ben. Appreciate it. Very good. Thanks for waiting so long as well. All right. So, let us... Let me adjust the audio here a little bit. Okay. All right. No, it, it's it's fine. Just just let me okay, do this. Okay, Mr. Producer. Just All let right. me yep. do this. All right. Right. <laughs> All right. So, without giving uh, too much away, what is your book, Bloodline, about? Well, in, in this book, uh, it's uh, an adventure, I should say. The president's daughter is kidnapped. And it's up to sort of a covert military team to discover where she's been taken. What they discover is that the target of this abduction is not the daughter herself, but it's her unborn child, who may or may not hold the genetic key to immortality. And this then opens up a whole subject matter of really what's going on in various scientific labs right now in the U.S. and across the globe in this uh, search or this quest for immortality. This is the, the secret key towards extending human life. And, a much broader I'm sorry to interrupt you, but could you uh, speak up a little bit? 
I sure can. I could sure try. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's much better. Yeah, right into the phone. That'd be great. Okay. All right. So, 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 so yeah. The, yeah. Uh, so continue, please. Story deals with uh, the uh, the quest for immortality and the unlocking. You know, what's going on in the labs around the world right now towards this goal of of, of reaching that barrier of, of of reaching that ultimate goal of of, of immortality. All right, so what kind of uh, thinking and research led you to your ideas about immortality? Well, it basically started out, I was actually in a, in a grocery store aisle, and there was a, a magazine on the shelf next to me, and one of the magazines was Time Magazine, and the cover article for that week was uh, 2045, the year man becomes immortal. And I kept looking at that date, 2045, and sort of calculating in my head, and realizing there's a good chance that in 2045 I'm still going to be around. It just seemed astounding that, that we could be that close to, to that goal. And it sent me about a, a year-long research talking to different scientists in different labs both here in this country and abroad to find out actually how close we are to that goal. And what I've discovered is that uh, there's some startling things going on in labs right now, things that I think people are not aware of that are going on, and that, if anything, that 2045 estimate uh, is probably a little bit conservative. I even touched base with some of these scientists just recently uh, as I've begun this book tour. And uh, a lot of them revise their estimates up. Uh, so a lot of these goals they are trying to achieve by 2045, they're now saying are going to be done uh, much quicker. Hmm. All right. So, well, you already mentioned that this is, well, I guess you sort of led into the next question and how this is actually pretty close to reality. But l- let's move on a little bit to... Uh, to understand immortality, we we feel that you first have to understand life. So, what is your definition of life? And then that leads into another question. Uh, what we're getting at is, oh well, whatever. You can just answer what your definition sure. of life is. Well, my definition of life is being a veterinarian myself. It, it, it's more from a biological standpoint. You know, the the, uh, the physical body that we have today, uh, and this quest for immortality, of course, is, is how to extend this biological structure that is our body uh, as long as possible for it. What the biological structure expires. Uh, what happens from that point on? You know, I've written books about that in the past in regards to where the seat of human consciousness lay. Uh, I've spoken to different scientists that have different opinions on where that seat of consciousness lay. Uh, so what beyond what goes beyond that point is not something I dealt with in the current book, though I have dealt with it in the past. All right, so this leads more into a philosophical point of view. So that that we're getting at is: yeah. can you fully define life as a physical life? For the, the sake of this book, yes. Um, you know, for the sake of this book, I'm when life deals with you know your heartbeat, your brain functioning, uh, having an active EEG. Because uh, the quest for all these scientists in various labs is again trying to keep that biological entity continuing forward. All right, Jim. Here's what bothers me. Uh, it's not that I don't have any confidence in science, but um, but I, 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 I don't have any confidence in science. <laughs> Um, the world is constructed as it is for a reason, and every time we try to improve it, we follow it up. I don't know. It's like it's like the kid who sees his moon out the window and he tries to grab it, and he only falls to his death. I mean, it, it's like uh, I don't know. Every time science gets onto something like this, it reminds me of a troop of trained monkeys coming upon a warehouse full of dynamite. Um, I, I, the whole paradigm, not to put to find a point on it, to me seems catastrophic. I don't know, we congratulate each other with advanced degrees when our entire epistemology is based on totally insupportable assumptions, such as that life is nothing but physical. Right. In fact, we don't know anything of the kind. I mean, what say you? Well, I mean, definitely, I mean, I have a different definition of what 
what not necessarily what life is. Maybe that's the the problem with the conversation at this point is is, is, is the term life itself. You know, I again I've had a whole book about the seat of human consciousness and that the brain probably is functioning like a quantum computer and that our consciousness probably lays in the quantum universe where where a bunch of strange science is and where probably once we do Yeah, that's kinda of where we shed operate. Yeah, this shed this you know biological structure uh, that 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 our our consciousness that's in that quantum sphere still exists. All right. And, and well, potentially can still influence things. Okay. Well, before we even get into the more philosophical aspects of that, th- there are a number of practical considerations here. Um, wh- overpopulation. Now, I know that I, I listened to a program with John Stossel the other night, and he was, you know, saying this is nonsense. But I don't know. From my own point of view, it seems that virtually all our problems, economic, um, even health-wise, uh, I don't, and and environmental it can pretty much all be traced back to overpopulation. Now, with the risk of oversimplifying the problems, um, if people are going to live forever, I mean, what, what what does that do to the population of the planet? I mean, what 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 where where, where does that go? Well, that is one of the major structures that uh, major uh, moral issues that I raise in this book. I always like to deal with science from a moral standpoint. You know, science is like a you know big truck. Grinding forward, oftentimes uh, beyond our ability to, to judge whether we should be going that direction or not. Sure, and that's why I love to explore my novel. This questions like that. If we do breach this barrier of immortality, it's not just the overpopulation that becomes an issue, which is a huge issue, mm-hmm. uh, as we sort of already running out of resources as it is. If we have people living a significantly longer lives, how's that going to change? Mm. But also, just questions about uh, you know what's going to happen to the human culture itself. Uh, you know, of course, while if immortality is possible, who's going to get it? Is it just the rich people who are going to get this? Do we begin a whole class structure based on longevity? Sure. Um, and if we have an infinite number of tomorrows, what does that happen to us as human beings? Because you know, the the death, you know, the fact that we have an end point, we have a termination point in our existence, defines who we are as human beings. It defines, you know, why we have children. Uh, it defines, you know, why we sort of try to do things. If we have an infinite number of tomorrows, what happens? Uh, you know, does the procrastination gene kick in where we, you know, say, okay, I'm not going to bother to do that today because I can do that tomorrow. If you have an infinite number of tomorrows, does, does, does progress become stagnate? Uh, do people put off having children? Uh, does boredom set in? So there's some huge issues beyond the, the, the fact of where we're going to put these people. Well, you said the magic word, and that's boredom. But just just before we get to that, um, th- th- this obviously implies that tomorrow you're not going to get hit by a freight train. Right. I mean, we're talking, we're talking about you know, sort of yes. uh, disease-free, and I understand. Maybe you can, maybe you can uh, confirm or deny this. I understand, uh, and I, you know, my, my degree is in philosophy. I'm, I'm not a, a medical fellow. I understand that we are essentially constructed to live about 150 years. Is that correct? 120. 120. Okay. Because yeah, uh, uh, Leonard Hayflick, back in 1961 sort of just determine what the maximum natural age of the human being is. And he determined that for the number of times that, a, that your cell can divide before it dies. And we have these little uh, sort of timekeepers in our DNA called telomeres. And as we uh, each cell divides, it starts to fray, almost like the ends of your shoelaces. And, uh, and uh, so he calculated the actual number of times the cells can divide, did a calculation, and determined that the number of uh, the natural age for a human being is about 120 years. Which, just a, off a little bit side target here, is that, uh, oddly enough, the book of Genesis uh, came to the same conclusion. Uh, there's a quote from the book of Genesis that says that in regards to human longevity, you know, his days shall be numbered 120 years. Hmm. 
So it's That's right, yeah. The Bible yeah. has that same conclusion that, you know, all the way till the present time, the modern age, it took a scientist to come, up, come to the same conclusion. So that we do seem to have a biological clock uh, in regards to how long our cells are supposed to survive because of these uh, sort of time limiters that are, that are built into our DNA. All right, so you're suggesting by... Well, you're suggesting that that was a mistake on the part of God or nature or revolution or whoever, you know, that we can correct? Well, there's different theories of thought on why we have telomeres. And the biggest thing is, is basically to stop cancer. Uh, you know, we made a sort of a biological trade-off not to live forever, uh, not to regenerate limbs, not to do a lot of things that biologically we could. It's in our DNA code there. We see it in other types of mammalian species and in other type of, of, of lizards. But we made a trade-off evolutionary-wise to combat cancer by putting these little time limits. Because if you have a time limit in a cell, it can only divide a number of times and then it kills cancer. So uh, cancer is basically cells that are dividing unregulated. That's an interesting result. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things we made that biological or evolutionary trade-off in the past to make our bodies more resistant to cancer, but in doing so, we also limit our longevity. Okay. All right, so... In my dad's books, he points out the common idea of uh, heaven would soon turn out to be a hell just because of boredom. I mean, there was a Twilight Zone episode that was like that, where this guy who was a criminal, he died, and he was in this really awesome place, and he played craps and won, like, all the time. He was like, wow, this place is really boring. And then <laughs> the devil's like, hey, just kidding, this is actually hell. But how would that work out for physical immortality? Would it be that same kind of scenario? Well, that's, uh, again, I guess it depends a lot on, on different personalities. Myself, you know, in this book I pose the question, you know, if, you, if we could live forever, would you live forever? Uh, in my case, uh, you know, I probably, even though it may sound selfish, I probably would lean towards doing that simply because uh, I just have a very strong curiosity factor. I'm one of the guys that can't leave a movie in the middle of it, no matter how bad the movie is. I just got to see how it ends. Uh, so there's part of me that would be curious how things will, will, will transpire. But I'm also, you know, things are changing rapidly and in regards to overpopulation, in regards to boredom, um, it's hard to envision what the world will look like when we cross that barrier. Now, just this is one example. You know, computers are pretty powerful today. They can do some pretty amazing things. They're pretty powerful. But uh, current estimates say that by 2030, that computing power will be about a million times what it is today. Uh, that's almost an incomprehensible world. Uh, so when it comes to boredom, how how are we going to be living our lives? We'll be living our lives in you know William Gibson's Neuromancer type of future, this, this cyberpunk future. We'll be all living in virtual realities. Uh, is there other what can we live multiple lives? Even though we have an infinite number of uh, infinite number of days, do we divide that into different lives? We live a certain part of our life as a, as a, as a guy, a certain part of our life as a female. There's, you know, there's just so many things that can change there. It's hard to predict how boredom might set in if we with this new world that's 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 correcting. Okay, that's an intriguing approach. Uh, interesting, interestingly, and I, I don't flatter myself that you've read my books, and unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read yours because I, it just you know it was a rather quick booking we did sure. here. Uh, but uh, in our work in the paranormal, which includes all sorts of different definitions of that word, we've encountered time and time and time again. As a matter of fact, it's become a, a fact of daily life what we refer to as the multiverse, in which people are already living many, many different lives, and that's reflected in our subconscious lives. And uh, this is even from work in psychiatric hospitals that I did 30 years ago. I mean, I just immediately started to come to to conclusions like this. And um, so so the issue of boredom, uh, as you say, may, may not be an issue. 
Nevertheless, let's, uh, let's ask a question. How do you support yourself for eternity? Who pays? That's a good question. Um, you know, at this point, if, if the goal a lot of these projects I've been re- reading about and, and interviewing scientists about has not meant simply to extend human life, but to basically increase the quality of your years. So theoretically, if you're, in, if you're living an infant number of days, uh, hopefully those are good days. Good days, good productive days, days where you can potentially be earning your living and contributing, being a contributing member of society. Um, whether that's true or not, we will, you know, we may be facing that sooner than we, than we expect. Right now we're heading towards a, you know, biological time bomb in and of itself in regards to what's happening in the U.S. in regards to the aging population. I'll just give you one statistic here. You know, Alzheimer's is a major, uh, problem with, uh, in the U.S. right now. Right now it costs about 80 to 100 billion dollars today to treat Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's. They estimate that you know the population stricken, Americans stricken with Alzheimer's will raise from four million today up to sixteen million by six, uh, the mid-century, and the cost of that will go up to about a trillion dollars. So we're looking at basically a U.S. population suffering from dementia that's going to be about equivalent to the current population of the Netherlands, and we're talking about literally about twenty years from now hitting that point. Uh, so a lot of these goals of these scientists are to try to find ways of, of stopping that, of finding solutions issues that, uh, that that result in unproductive years. So yeah. to get back to your question, you know, if we can solve Alzheimer's, we don't have you know, seniors that are in dementia that can be productive members of society. Um, if we can, as, as some of these scientists are doing, looking to replace the worn out parts in our bodies, so physically we're also not going to be unproductive members of society, but actually physically and it's not even better than we are today. There's some amazing things going on in regards to replacing worn out parts. Right now, there's about a thousand people running around with a, with a synthetic pancreas in their belly. There's about thirty thousand Parkinson patients that have implants that control their disease, and that just we're just you know, cresting into the whole nanotech medical issue. We're looking at taking machines and putting them into our bodies. One of the things I was reading that in the next fifteen years, uh, nanotechnology will have all the promise of replacing vital organs in twenty years replacing our blood cells within 25 years, theoretically even reprogramming our biological software to maybe even reverse it. Um, so there's, there's, the goal of this is not to you know, have a basically a, uh, a large you know, decaying population of immortals out there, but to hopefully buy better quality years, more productive years for, for individuals. Well, that sort of brings up another question, another question I have in my mind, that... I I'm no ex, I'm not an expert by any means in any of these subjects, but I did take a few a few courses in um, sociology where I had a very very interesting teacher to put it put it lightly. He was a very odd guy, but he pointed out something really interesting. He was he said that or well from his point of view he was saying you know about. 100 years ago or hundreds and hundreds of years ago you never heard about people getting cancer but because their lifespans were shorter now that lifespans are longer we're living long enough to get cancer and all these other diseases do do you agree with that statement i totally agree with that i mean that's one of the reasons why we probably do see a lot of dementia cases that the average life expectancy has increased you know about a thousand years ago the average life expectancy for for people was about 25 years and it took about another 900 years just to extend that another 12 years to 37 but the last century, uh, last hundred years, we've seen that that average life expectancy of 37 jump all the way to 78. It took us 900 years to go 12 to bump it up 12. It was only 100 years to bump that up, you know, almost doubled. 
And that's mostly because of you know the advent of, of technology and, and being able to and medicine and hygiene and uh, that's allowed us to live this much longer. But as a consequence, we are running into to more and more concerns about cancer, about dementia, about a lot of these issues that are just now beginning to arise. So perhaps from a natural standpoint, maybe we're not supposed to live forever. That's just that maybe that that's just what I'm getting out of this. That maybe nature is keeping us short, so to speak. There yeah, I are mean, reasons why things are as they are. I mean, different different uh, you know, animals have different life lifespans, and a lot of it is because some of the evolutionary trade offs that we made. You know, turtles live longer than us, and uh, whereas other smaller animals live shorter than us. A lot of us we make evolutionary trade-off and so there definitely is a that 120 year mark i think is real i think that that is where we are right now as natural biological you know, beings that's what we're that's what the maximum we're supposed to live because of just the way our bodies are built in our dna structures but now that we're seeing you know scientists beginning to unlock even the dna so right now there's a there's a new field of, of study called cyber genetics uh, it's the merging of, of, of machine and gene together I know your DNA is basically just information processing for building your body. Uh, now the software is, of course, you know, millions of years old, but the cybernetics tells the potential of actually uh, overhauling that system. And the limits that are put into our genetics, into our biology, potentially can begin to reverse. Um, there's a reason one one scientist that we're working on creating a, a stable triple helix of DNA. And that's a superstructure of you know, two biological strands of DNA, and then they've inserted a, an artificial strand created in the lab called PNA. And what they found was that what they can do is that with that artificial strand woven like a snake between our two DNA, we can actually turn on and turn off genes. It gives us basically total genetic control over, over, over that genetic structure. Um, and already they've used that type of science to uh, begin to develop a cure for muscular dystrophy in lab animals. And now going to be coming to test that. Uh, so there's some some amazing things coming on the forefront in regards to unlocking that biological restrictions that we just talked about. This 120 year mark, uh, scientists are beginning to find a way of unlocking that for better or for worse. Okay, well that's that's the question. Well, we're going to take our commercial break right now. I'll be right back. I'm behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. Stay with us. Every Paw Sox game is filled with sights you really just can't forget. There's the green of the field, the blue of the sky, the pitcher glaring in toward home plate, and the crowd whooping it up over a home run. But maybe most of all is the sight of your kid wearing a baseball glove, eyes big as saucers, collecting an autograph. Every game means something. What will it mean to you? Come on out and see the Pawtucket Red Sox. For ticket information, call 401-724-7300 or visit pawsox.com. And this program is brought to you by also uh, Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle, the marvelous reading devices that you can get that eliminate the hugely expensive trips to the bookstore and uh, more gas in your tank and all that sort of thing. You can download over 2 million publications, newspapers, books, magazines. And with Amazon Kindle Fire, the higher-end version for only $179, I should say $199, you can get not only all those publications, but apps and games and films and TV shows and all sorts of things in living color, as they used to say. And uh, for as low as $79, you can get the Kindle itself for your reading pleasure. It's great for any time summer use. We're only halfway through the summer season. Lots of beach time left, 
So check it out on Amazon.com or at Staples or any place else that carries the Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle devices. Okay, we're back and behind the paranormal here with our very interesting guest, Dr. James Rollins, New York Times best-selling author, and we're discussing uh, the possibilities and consequences of living forever physically. Okay, let me just, Jim, tell you what, what again, kind of bothers me. And I don't want to come across here like some old curmudgeon, you know, who's just, uh, you know, we longing for the days of, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but it's just, and it's funny we're having this conversation on this show because I'm always spending time dealing with a lot of spiritualists, just given the subject of the show, is they'll come on and, and they'll talk about, you know, ghosts and the spirit world and all this stuff, as if the body means absolutely nothing. And I'm constantly arguing that, that, that we are not ourselves without our bodies. But in a way, we're kind of arguing here that, that um, I, I guess I have to argue that we are not fully ourselves without our soul, spirits, uh, multiversal lives, whatever you want to call it. A little it. bit of both. Little, yeah, a little bit of both. And it, it, the body, just just as the, the spirit isn't good enough, neither is the body. Let me, let me just point this out before you respond. Um, I, I'm always seriously bothered, maybe it's because of my degrees in philosophy, but I'm always seriously bothered by our assumptions. We assume all sorts of things, and one of the things we assume, and this comes up in UFO discussions, that the that the definition of advancement is tied to technological advancement. That people may have uh, supposed if these things are really true, they have you know craft that can zoom from planet to planet, and, and that's advancement. Well, I think advancement should be defined at least ninety percent as, as spiritual and moral advancement. I would much rather be at the, at the at the hands or in the company of people who live in huts and cook over open fires, and and are spiritual uh, giants than I would in the hands of some uh, sort of uh, pseudo-Nazi aliens who are running around in these super-great spaceships. I mean, you get where I'm going here? Uh, I, just, I am. No, I, mean, we're, do, I think we're on the, the same wavelength in regards to that. Yeah, because, I mean, do, do we... Uh, what kind of arrogance does it take for, for people who are as, as, as ill-developed as, as we are, morally and spiritually, to, to be even thinking about this stuff? It just bothers me. And, and, and this, when we mess with nature, all hell breaks loose every single time. That's what bothers me. What say you? Yep. I mean, basically, you know, as it's mentioned before, like scientific exploration regularly tests society's moral compass. You know, it is it's human cloning, good or bad. What about stem cell research? You know, at every turn, the fringes of science are you know, testing a society, whether it's morally, whether it's spiritually, whether it's economically. And at the accelerating pace of, such a, of this exploration, we're, we're outstripping our ability to ring in our advancement or to adequately judge where that knowledge will take us. And I think the answer that, you, that to that is what you just posed, which is without a moral or spiritual center, none of this is going to matter. Um, if we don't have, if we don't strengthen our spiritual and moral center as much as you know, science is going to run amok and it's going to lead to disaster. I believe there's, there needs to be some synergy, some balance between uh, you know, recognizing how beneficial science is. I mean, the, the polio vaccine, the first antibiotic, uh, you know, they've done some wonderful things to eliminate suffering, to, uh, to save people's lives. But at the same time, you can't let science 
scientists just run unchecked. Because basically, the scientists are like mountain climbers. You know, if it's you know if it's there, they're going to climb it. Right. If they can do something, they're going to attempt to do it. Some lab, somewhere, someplace is going to do things. And and I've uncovered some of that in this book. There's some links I have at the end of my novel. At the end of my book, I have a sort of what's true, what's not, where I separate truth from fiction. And I have some links in that where you can actually see some of the things that I'm talking about. And some of them come with big warnings. So do not watch this unless you have a strong stomach. Um, <laughs> because some of the things that are going on in different science labs around the world right now are very disturbing. And I think what what the big problem is just we stress, we don't sometimes we lose our spiritual center in our pursuit for scientific exploration. If we want to benefit, I think the best benefit for society today is to find that balance between that spiritual center and and still going ahead and continuing with scientific exploration, but from a from a from basically a strong foundation that has a strong merit, moral and spiritual center. Okay, well, I'm relieved to hear you say that. Um, well, there, there's another big question that arises, too, when you bring it up yourself, and I'm very anxious to read your books. They really sound great. Uh, the the issue of who decides who I mean obviously you, you cannot take seven what are we at now seven eight billion people on the planet yeah obviously you, you can't do this for everybody it means that logistically it would simply be impossible who decide and this is an ironic question because you know the, 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 one of the arguments against uh, the uh, national health care bill was uh, was the accusation that there are going to be death panels and people are going to decide who's going to die well who who's going to decide who's going to live. Who decides and who pays? I mean, you can't get away from who pays. I mean, we're dead broke as it is. Yeah, we'd be like and the Jetsons right now if we had the money for it. I suppose, yeah, when we were kids, you know, I don't know how old you are, Jim, but when I was a kid, you know, they were the Jetsons, and oh boy, we'll be flying around in cars, but nobody considered air traffic control. But anyway, uh, what would you say to that? Um, who decides? Well, at this point, I think uh, that is a, that's, a, that's the most, probably the most disturbing question. I do not trust the government to make those choices for you us. You don't? And I, oddly enough, no. And I'll use this one example. You know, in China today, um, they're a major source of transplanted organs. Um, and organs from one person fetch about $100,000 on the worldwide market. Um, and China started a hidden policy of executing prisoners, uh, specifically, usually, they're, they're unwanted groups, like the Buddhist group, the Falun Gong, yep. but also Tibetans, uh, Church Christians, Muslims, human yeah. right activists, mm-hmm. and they basically turn the prisons into into body farms. Um, in 2005, the Chinese minister acknowledged that about 95 percent of all transplanted organs come from execution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if that's the type of uh, decision making going on in regards to just the wholesale buying and selling of human organs, when it comes to the wholesale buying of human life, uh, of this quest for immortality. Um, if you leave it to the government, it's going to be an ugly situation. And I think that goes back to the earlier question about, you know, unless you have a spiritual moral center, it's not it's not a guiding hand to some of this technology that's coming in. It's coming fast, by the way. We're not, we're not talking about things that are in the far distant future. I can tell you some disturbing things that I just uh, learned just recently, just a couple of days ago, from one scientist. Um, we're, we're heading to this fast, and, and we're going to need to start making some decisions about just that. Who, who gets who gets to get this, this gift, if, if you will, or this curse of immortality? Who's going who's to be the gatekeeper for this? I don't know. Yeah. Um, at this point, uh, is it going to be the healthcare system? I wager that's where it's going to start. You know, when we start finding ways of living longer, it's not going to be an instant immortality. It's going to be a gradual process where we find this cure, we find that cure, we find this thing. 
A lot of it's going to be dictated by who has health insurance, which is a whole issue in and of itself. Um, and then eventually, as it gets longer and longer, the government's going to become more and more involved beyond what it is in healthcare already. Well, uh, I have every bit of respect for you and for your information sources, but our information sources, too, because I know naturally a lot of flaky people are interested in the paranormal. You have to admit that. But on the other hand, there, there are a lot of interesting sources who tell us that official policy, and is, and this is not within the medical community, it's within the government community, is to reduce the population. Uh, sometimes, well, any conspiracy theorist might tell you that, that there might be extreme measures being considered. I don't know if I believe that. But um, that there is a realization that being able to support this number of people with the... Um, well, with, with the food supply, never mind the uh, national health care system, is, is just going to be very daunting. So uh, all these things that come up through the medical community have to be presumably approved uh, in this country by the FB, FDA and other countries. And I don't know, there are, also, there are so many, there are very, very few givens here. There are so many variables that uh do you really? Why, why do you think it is coming so quickly with all these other factors that have to be considered? Um, well, just or is it just the technology you're talking about? It's supposed to be technology, but I'll use this one example. I think it's pretty uh, demonstrative what we're talking about here. Okay. Is that uh, IBM right now is working with a bunch of Swiss scientists on a project called the, the Blue Brain Project. And what they're doing, this, this combination of, of IBM and Swiss scientists, is reverse engineering the mammalian brain down to the molecular level. They're looking at creating a virtual brain, synapse by synapse, neuron by neuron, uh, doing a perfect mirror of the human brain using the, the advancing computer networks that are on right now. Um, when I when I first started my book, which is you know when you, books take a while to get to, to print, so I, yeah, tell I was me about it. Doing my research, it was about almost two and a half years ago when I was talking to these scientists initially. And this is the book Bloodline. Bloodline, right? Right. Okay. And these scientists said that they were going to accomplish this goal, this, 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 this virtual brain. And what they, what they anticipate will happen when they achieve this goal, which is disturbing in and of itself, is that when they complete this goal, they, they turn it on, they get it functioning, one of two things they anticipate might happen. Number one is they might spark an artificial intelligence to spontaneously appear in that brain. Or it's going to be a blank slate that they can mirror somebody's, because they're going to mirror somebody's brain when they do that. They're going to you know, find somebody's brain, mirror it, neuron by neuron, synapse by synapse. And they're wondering when they turn that on if that person is going to be in that computer at that point. Now, that sounds like science fiction. Now, this IBM scientist said they were going to accomplish that goal within the next 10 years. Startling in and of itself. That would be that close within, within a decade uh, of accomplishing that goal. Now, I talked to Henry Markham, the, the director of this, um, back about maybe two and a half weeks ago, just so it started my book tour. And he said, you know, you know, Jim, I've got to revise my estimate on that. And so when he was saying that, I'm thinking, well, he's going to push it to 20 years or 30 years because it seems like so a astounding thing to accomplish. He goes, no, we're going to accomplish this goal by the year 2015. Oh, my gosh. So we're that close to something that sounds almost like science fiction, something that's just out of the realm of possibility. You know, Raymond Kurzweil is the, uh, coined the term the singularity, the point where you know, computers will outstrip us. Uh, humans in regards to intelligence. And, uh, well, well, again, we're assuming that the scientific materialist paradigm or something like it is true. Right. Uh, let me, first of all, let, let me give our phone numbers again here. Uh, uh, again, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal on WON 1240 AM, the number locally uh, or from Canada, 401-766-1240, or from anywhere in the U.S., 800-449-1240. Our guest, of course, is Dr. James Rollins. Uh, now, Jim, 
I, I've actually dealt with people to whom this has happened. Uh, organ recipients, uh, recipients of people who have, who have been killed in accidents who were organ donors, their, their organs were, as the, as the word goes, harvested and used to save the lives of others. I've dealt with three people over the last 30 years who had the weirdest experiences with this. The organ was placed in their bodies. They immediately began to have the memories that, that properly would have belonged to the people to whom the, from whom the organs came. They knew things that only the people who, you know, who had the organs could have known because they were dead in this reality anyway. And, uh, I mean, I, I just, I'm really nervous that these people are, are, are using the instructions for building a bomb uh, in order to build a car. You know, it just, it, I don't know, I have no confidence in Western thought or Western epistemology. It's pathetic, uh, the limitations of, of this, you know, and, and generations before us seem to know it. So I, I don't, maybe it's just me, maybe I'm being curmudgeonly. Well, the thing is, science does a lot of good things, but with that good comes a lot of bad. Well, because it's, it's it, not a it complete equals, picture. It e- well, it equals out, because science has done a lot of good things, and science has done a lot of bad things. It's well, well, we are the best fed... Uh, best housed, best cared for, miserable people in history. And that's true. You know, so I'd be, I, and I'm glad, you know, Jim sort of sees what we're talking about here. But First again, I don't mean to be, you know, negative and complaining about this, but I, I just don't trust these people. Well, I'm actually, you know, when it comes to the, that, that story about the organ transplant and, and having people's memory, I believe that. Uh, I believe these people are not, uh, are not making things up. I think that there's anecdotal evidence is pretty strong. But I also uncovered uh, and, and sort of tangentially with this, um, it's not even in my book, but I, I discovered this research while I was doing this book, is that we don't necessarily know where full memory lies. Uh, no, there's, it's now, there's now some studies that show that the proteins that are in our cells affect our DNA and that some of our memories are locked in our DNA. So when you go ahead and, and put a transplanted organ which has somebody else's DNA in it, uh, there's some probably memory locked in that DNA. Uh, I would not be surprised if, if some of those proteins leaving those cells from that transplanted organ are not triggering something. You know, they travel to the bloodstream, up to the brain, they trigger the, the memory that was locked in there by the previous user of that organ. Uh, so there's actually some scientific proof that, that might actually exist. Well, that's uh, certainly possible. Yeah, well, uh, physicists might say it's. Not, and we, I, again, we, we look at things more from the viewpoint of physics than medicine. Which is also a mistake, because everybody's too specialized. Nobody knows any other anybody else's field. Uh, but anyway, we think that you know, this many physicists say that these things are non-local. Science, uh, rather, memory is non-local. Imagination is believed to be non-local. But again, that's their opinion. No, I mean, there's some. I, I love exploring quantum physics and the whole you know, spookiness of that, uh, that, that the non-locality of, of, of events. Sure. The way one particle can change, and a particle, you know. Half a you know half the world away can change consequences. So there's no connection between that. You know, science really uh you know that that, that spooked I, Albert Einstein. Even he was like a little bit freaked out by the by the. Oh yeah, he couldn't deal with it. Yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we don't know a lot of what's going on. That we don't know where the seat of, of memory is completely. We don't know where the seat of human consciousness is. Um, there's a doctor named Sebastian Sung at MIT. Uh, doctor, I have a huge amount of respect for. I'm fascinated by her research. He's working on what's called the Human Connectome Project, which sounds very much like the Human Genome Project. Right. What he's doing is he's, he's trying to map out the human synaptic map, this network in our head 
Uh, basically, he wanted to shed some light on the anatomical and functional connectivity um, in the health of the brain for autism, for Alzheimer's, for schizophrenia. Very good, good, good uh, goals. But uh, what he believes is that it, it's in that unique synaptic map. You know, every time we have something new happens, we have a new experience, you know, a new synapse will form. And he believes, and whether true or not, that this vast synaptic map in our brain is, is really with who we are. That defines, that's our fingerprint, that's who we are. And he says that, you know, the, the amount of knowledge, the amount of data that's stored in the human brain in the synaptic connection, the synaptic, synaptic map it has about 100 billion times the amount of information lodged in it than our, than our own DNA does. Um, and that's almost incomprehensible. 100 billion, not million, 100 billion times the amount of data that's in that synaptic map. Mm-hmm. And he's, what he's trying to do, again, similar to the IBM scientists, is to, to, to create a functional synaptic map to understand his brain disorder. Uh, but, I mean, even, like the, even to this day, we don't know if he's going to be right or not. He doesn't know if he's going to be right or not. Sure, uh, yeah. Uh, he may do all the thing and find out, nope, it's not there either. Uh, it, like I said, at this point, there's many very esteemed uh, uh, biological scientists and, and uh, physicists who believe that our brain functions as a quantum computer and that our, our, our actual being, our, our, our consciousness, our soul, if you like, is, is not in our bodies. It's in the, it's in the quantum universe. Yeah, well, that that's it, and of course, it's almost like uh, you well, know. In, in, oh, I'm sorry, Ben. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to suggest maybe it's maybe it's not the people that need to change. Maybe science itself needs to change. It, it seems like it's hitting a lot of walls lately. When it just from what I've noticed, at least for from what I, from my point of view, it seems like science has been hitting a lot of walls. Maybe it needs to uh, change, as it were. Into and change its paradigms a little bit, not to like something more spiritual, but maybe pick up well, something different than. Well, yeah, I, I mean, like pick up something different besides Newtonian like physics and things like that. Well, I think the whole scientific method has to be rewritten, but that, that, that's that's for another day, I guess. Uh, you know, but but Jim, I just I just have um, I just don't want this to be another. You have to pass the bill in order to find out what's in it, kind of thing. You know, because <laughs> you know, because our, our argument would be this. In our experience with the paranormal, which has taken us right into quantum mechanics, we're already immortal. We're already living infinite or semi-infinite numbers of lives, it, bodies and all, in all sorts of places that, that are right next door, but we, we can't necessarily see. But we're beginning to see. You know, and we would say that all this is entirely unnecessary. And an exercise in robotics and motor vehicle repair, as it were, that's completely without any need. So that would be our argument for, what, for whatever it's worth. That's I mean, definitely most of science seems to be described motor repair. Yeah. Replacing our worn-out parts. And, you know, <laughs> exactly. I, and, you know I, my goal, hopefully, is that there will be some balance between ending suffering and minimizing suffering while we have these biological bodies that we have right now. Absolutely. Well, you can't ask that, more than that. Know, actually, actually, yeah, yeah. Find that spiritual balance and find that moral center. To, to know, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Um, am I confident we'll reach that goal? Not really. Well, I hope you're right. Because, uh, unfortunately, uh, money drives a lot of our economy, a lot of the world. Money's powerful. Uh, power is, you know, it's that old phrase, you know, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I just don't know when we put the, when we put the, uh, this gift of immortality in somebody's hand, what, who, what is going to happen? That's a little frightening. It is. It is. Well, and in a way, we already have it, in our opinion, and uh, yep. we're seeing what we're doing with it. Well,
Well, anyway, Jim, thank you so much. And uh, tell us about, again, about the book, about your website, where people can find out more about you, where people can get the book. Yeah, Bloodline is available everywhere uh, on Amazon or any bookstores. Uh, it's, uh, if you want to find out more about the book, jamesrollins.com. It's got some great information about this book and the previous books, but also I have a great section for any aspiring authors out there, some tips on publishing, tips on writing, uh, both in this new paradigm of the of the ebook. Um, great information on that. I've had some, some uh, friends of mine that have had huge success on, on ebook publishing and self publishing. So it's a, it's a brand new world out there uh, in the publishing world, and uh, I hope. Yeah. You have a little bit of road mark, roadmap uh, on, my, on my website. Oh, it's very true. And, and your publicist is a, is a dear friend of ours. And uh, I learned a lot through her for, about our own publishing endeavor, which didn't work out so well, but hey, it's all changing. But also, um, you are the author of the Sigma series, I understand? Right. Bloodline is the eighth book in the Sigma series, so they can be read in any order. Plenty of books. As I say, you make me sick. It takes me five years to write a book. <laughs> anyway, James, it's been a real, real, a real a genuine pleasure. It and, really is. Uh, we'd like to have you back uh, you know, as, as, as very soon, and we'll be in touch about that. All been any, any time. Okay, well, thank you very much again. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Have a good one. All right. And now on to our announcements. Our announcements? We have like ten minutes. Well, we'll, be, well, all right. Well, do the announcements, and if we have time for some email, we will. <laughs> okay, I'm just just saying. No, I think we have a lot of email here too. So yes, I'm just saying we have we have a we have a large amount of time. And the so, sun's in my face here, so. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm keeping the camera on me, for, in case anyone wants to know on the internet. So the next stop on our tour of public appearances in, in the town hall style meetings is Woodbridge, Suffolk, England, on Saturday, September 22nd. Uh, we will present our program exploring the paranormal with CBS Radio's Paul and Ben Eno at the Grove House Hotel in Woodbridge from 7 to 11 p.m. Tickets are 11 pounds per person, and it will include a full buffet dinner courtesy of the hotel, and proceeds will go to local charities. So this event will take place in a highly active paranormal area, which was the scene of the famous Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents of 1980, and Larry Warren, eyewitness to the event and co-author of Left at East Gate, plans to join us that evening. So keep uh, keep in contact with us for that. So for more information and to buy tickets, visit www.spaceportuk.com slash events.html or just go to our website, uh, behindtheparanormal.com and look for the link to that site under what's new so finally my dad and i will be speaking will be featured speakers at the all hallows eve psychic fair at the crown plaza hotel in warwick rhode island on sunday october 28th so watch for more info on these events and more at www.behindtheparanormal.com and again you want to contact us through uh, behindtheparanormal.com you can also get information on guests past present and future and oh, uh, nearly 400 podcasts right now. And I should mention there has been a problem uh, with uploading the podcast from uh, last night's CBS show and l- last week's WON show. And there might be one with time, but we are working on that. Please be patient. Uh, people have been writing to us saying that the, the links are broken. We'll, we'll get them up there as soon as we can uh, and as efficiently as we can. Uh, also on the Behind the Paranormal site, you can buy uh, copies of my books which it takes me five years to write, uh, subscribe to our newsletter, and you can also apply to become a show reporter as well. Now, why don't we... Uh, well, we have a few minutes here, so, so let's... We are so overwhelmed with emails uh, that we are just... Um, we're just going to do a month of open line we're shows. We're just going to do a month of open line shows, so I was sorry to end our interview so soon today, but... Um, all right, here is one from um, Chris in 
Oh, no, no, that, that, I'm not going to read that one. That, that's more practical information. All right. Uh, I did want to point out that this is um, too long to uh, to read. However, this is... Uh, is there an abridged version? Yeah, all right, I'll tell you. Well, why don't you do this one? Uh, this is from P. Mitchell in Detroit, the great WOMC. We should start making... Uh, abridged versions of really long emails but um right. hi paul and ben i appreciate your work and i really admire your relationship Aww. i see i seem to have a deep understanding of or you seem to have a deep understanding of each other and a comfort level that i as a father wish i had with my son uh, one thing that has brought us together recently is our question about the future will anything really happen in december what will happen to us should we just give up on all the trouble that daily life can bring I know you don't uh, commit yourselves to any one answer to this, and I respect that you ask people to continue to do um, uh, what they're supposed to do. But that doesn't always uh, take away the fear. Every time we turn on the TV, uh, see either uh, brainless nonsense like the Kardashians or Jersey Shore, (laughs) or scary stuff from the uh, so-called History Channel on uh, how something is going to kill us all, uh, like the Yellowstone (laughs) supervolcano or... Planet X or our own population. Sorry for rambling, but we do appreciate your guidance, and we have noticed your statements on the good world and uh, some possible escape. How is that coming along? Oh boy! Well, a very interesting letter, uh, Mr. Mitchell. I guess here, I, I just and we thank you for it. Nobody really knows what is going to happen. I think we are our own best. Well, to misuse the word profits, because we. Um, down deep within us, as we were having discussion about with Dr. Rollins, is our other selves living in other times, and that includes the future. I would often talk with people who are uh, hypnotists and regression therapists about what happens when they regress people back through their so-called past lives, and they'll say, do they ever describe future lives? And they say, well, funny you should ask. Yes, they do. And there's a recognition now among these people that people are really living parallel lives. All right, you know, as we were discussing, it works seemingly, seemingly through quantum mechanics. So, whatever is happening here, there's always you're always in a life where something better is happening or something good, and you're always in a life where something worse is happening. And that's really the best way we can put it. It's all one big you, and spiritual growth, in our opinion, is becoming aware of that in a way that allows you to keep your feet on the ground where you are, when when you are, and also to realize that there is always hope, that you are never alone, that you are always loved, and that even you can help yourself from a place and a time that might be better. Now, it sounds kind of fluky, but when you look at it, you see the whole history of spiritual of spirituality is reflected in that statement. Really, when you're, whether you're reading the Bible or the, the, the Torah or, or the, whatever sacred books you're reading, you know, the, the, the Vedas, the Quran, this is really the message that you are taken care of and that and very often by the totality of the lives that you're living all the wisdom of the universe is yours all the sad things are yours too but it's up to you to make the most of both and that's essentially the message we can leave for whenever disaster may strike the world I mean sooner or later something is going to happen I'm not necessarily a believer in the 2012 thing as a matter of fact we're planning uh, the week after December 21st, to have uh, our good friends the Yerlan, who was an advocate of the Mayan calendar prophecy, and Dr. Chris Keating, a physicist who was not, uh, and we're all kind of good friends, I have him back and do a show on sort of a post-mortem on the 2012 prophecy. And uh, hopefully there will be a, po- a post-mortem to do. But in any case, 
as easy as it may sound, don't worry. Well, the thing is, there have been a lot of, like, end-of-world prophecies that have been going on for years now. I mean, there was Y2K, and then oh, before yeah, that, yeah. it was all these, there were just all these things, and every time someone's like, oh, the world's going to end, everyone's like, oh, and then nothing happens. Just love each other, stay together, and nothing can harm you, all right? Whatever happens, we're all in it together, and uh, as Red Green would say, we're keep all in it together. You know. Keep your stick on the keep ice. Keep your stick on the ice. That's all I can say. Okay, I guess we're kind of coming down. What do we, we got now? Oh, we got about two minutes. Okay, well, that's good. Well, in that case, let's... Um, well, no, I hope you already did most of our announcements. Uh, okay, well, again, we'll um, uh, refer you to BehindTheParanormal.com for the information. And uh, don't forget, you can come show a reporter on our site, too. So we will see you next Monday right here on WON1240, and that is Monday, August 6th. And on ONWorldwide.com, my dad and I will take the hour to discuss the history of, or the human history dealing with paranormal parasites. Yeah, that's, that was delayed from a few weeks ago because we had so many emails. On our regular CBS radio edition on Sunday, August 5th in Boston, Pittsburgh, Detroit, and Seattle, we'll be talking with our good friend Hollywood Insider and Mensa Luminary, Murray Silver about his own ghost experiences down in Savannah. You didn't thank me. Oh, so yeah, I, I appreciate <laughs> we thank the producer. Okay, I'm taking my son me. for granted. Ben, you did an outstanding job as always. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, Ben's been running the board here at WON, doing a fine job, and uh, there we are. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, we leave you this evening with a quote from the 20th century American author Kurt Vonnegut. We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. So thanks for sailing with us on this most interesting cosmic journey. And we still have a little bit of time. Okay, well, let's... All right. So the show's officially over. So what did you think about tonight's guest, Ben? He's a very, very interesting guy. Not what I expected at all. Yeah, he kind of surprised me with his um, a little more balanced attitude. But there's still sort of a faith in scientific materialism and science that I just... It just really makes me uncomfortable. Well, you know, they say you can't teach an all-dog new tricks. Well, no, but I mean, you also can't, you know, you can you can take the um, uh, instructions, as I said, for a bomb and build a car. By the way, that wasn't meant to be an insult towards you. I, what? I, was, I, I was like, can't teach an old dog new tricks. I didn't mean you. No, I've been old since I was 10. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Uh, and on that note, thanks for sailing with us on our great cosmic journey, and that was a very interesting last-minute killing session. So, we will see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.